As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we assess battlefield developments as Russia seizes settlements around Avdivka, discuss important political debates about armament, and look at what advice history gives in combating Russian propaganda and how to open a new front in the information war. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 28th of February, two years and four days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, our Senior Foreign Correspondent, Roland Oliphant, and our guest, disinformation and propaganda expert, Peter Pomerantsev. I started by asking Dom for the latest military updates from Ukraine. Well, thanks, Francis, and hi, everybody. Sorry, I still sound a bit a bit croaky, Joe, but let's start over in the in the east around Avdivka. Russian forces are attempting to exploit the tactical opportunities that have been thrown up by their uh, seizure of Avdivka. They are. It looks like they are maintaining a relatively high tempo of offensive operations, aimed to push as far well west and northwest seems to be the direction they're they're heading from Avdivka before Ukrainian forces are able to um, put in place a more coherent and harder to penetrate defensive line in the area. So Russian troops have pushed slightly further to the west. They've taken a, a couple of very small villages, uh, Stepove and another one nearby, uh, Sieverna. About 11 k's northwest of Avdivka, that came from Russian MOD. That seems to be backed up by other more credible sources, for which read credible sources. Um, the Ukrainian military said yesterday it had withdrawn troops from those two villages. They each had a, a total pre-war population of fewer than 100 people. So they're not, not big hamlets, but, you know, it's, it's heading west. The ISW, Institute for the Study of War, said that Russian forces had temporarily decreased their tempo of operations, having got through Avdivka. It, it came as a, you know, it took a lot of blood and treasure from Russia in terms of further uh, vehicles and tanks and what have you that, uh, that were thrown into that assault. They took it on February 17th last week. However, so there was a slight decrease in tempo, but they've since sort of 
pushed on again, picked up the tempo of assaults. ISW is saying that Russian command may have decided to to codify the command structure that seemed to have the success eventually in Avdivka. They put this together in the last few months or last few weeks of last year, and it seems to seems to have worked. And the what they're calling ISW are calling the Avdivka Donetsk axis is quite a narrow area of responsibility compared to normal Russian groupings of the size that are being committed to that area. And that focus, that um, that narrowing of the boundaries and that the, the, the mass they're able to put in there, the economy of force there, means that they are having some success pushing to the west. It's looking like the Russian military high command likely intends for elements of what they call the central military district to continue in the shape and the direction that it is in the um, uh, near to medium term. Thanks, Peter, for your email about active and static defences and, and, and views on that. I'll come back to that in final thoughts. But just just one other piece, probably linked to that earlier bit, Ukraine is likely to be at a disadvantage in the war for several months. This is coming from the head of Britain's armed forces. So Admiral Sir Tony Radikin speaking yesterday. He said Ukraine's troops were struggling in terms of its ammunition and its stockpiles. Um, we've reported on extensively. It's you know it is the talk the talk of the moment. U.S. military aid still blocked in Congress. Europe uh, unable to pick up the gap completely, especially with the time available. So um, Admiral Radikin says that Russia is at the tactical level gaining relatively small amounts of territory. So we see that that is what I've reported on earlier on. But um, you know all these small amounts can can add up. And if there's no significant defensive line behind where the Ukrainian troops are falling back from now, then it, you know, what's called a, a rearward passage of lines, as in withdrawing in contact with the enemy, is extremely difficult to do in good order. It can very easily shatter and, and then it turns into a rout, as we saw last, uh, when was it, in the fall of 2022, when, um, when Ukraine pushed through on the Kharkiv front and, and Russia just collapsed about 70 k's. Yeah, the, the ground is different around Avdivka, but... Once you once you once you lose that sort of coherent defence, it can um, it can all get very very messy very very quickly. That is why Russia are concentrating their forces there and trying to push push west as much as they can. Quite what manoeuvre elements they've got because they've lost so many tanks and vehicles, and the ability to coordinate anything on that scale is open to question. Um, I don't think they've got very well trained troops there. So are they able to exploit the tactical advantage they have now? We will see over the next uh, next few uh, weeks. Um, but yes, at the moment, they, they are pushing west of Avdivka, and I'll take a pause there while I still can. Thanks, Dom. A lot to absorb in the political realm as well today. Perhaps most significantly, the ongoing talks between President Biden's top team and senior Republicans over the Ukraine military aid package. The deadlock, in short, continues. We've got a lot of work to do, Biden said in the meeting in the Oval Office with Vice President Kamala Harris at his side and the two top congressional Democrats, as well as two top Republicans. Speaking to reporters afterwards, Chuck Schumer, the Democrats' majority leader in the Senate, said it was one of the most intense meetings he'd ever been part of as the Democrats sought to persuade Speaker Mike Johnson to agree to funding Ukraine. It's in his hands, Schumer said of Johnson. We told him how important it was. It was passionate. Johnson called the talks frank and honest, but said his priority was America first and that his primary concern is addressing migration along the US southern border with Mexico, a subject he said he's returned to repeatedly. 
We're seeing unfold what Fiona Hill warned about in her essay several weeks ago, namely the cost of Ukraine and defence becoming a partisan issue in the United States, when in the eyes of many it should remain bipartisan, as it has in several European countries, including Britain. The cost of this delay, if indeed it passes the military aid package, will be measured ultimately in human lives. Now, in the European theatre, meanwhile, Zelensky has just arrived in Albania to co-host a security summit involving Ukraine and six Western Balkans countries, the first such meeting as Russia's invasion drags into its third year. Zelensky, who is in Saudi Arabia on Tuesday, also trying to forge closer ties in the Middle East, is scheduled to meet the leaders of Albania, Serbia, North Macedonia, Kosovo, and Bosnia, uh, Bosnia, excuse me, and Montenegro. Now, Albania and North Macedonia and Montenegro are NATO members and have joined, therefore, Western sanctions against Russia and sent weapons and equipment to Ukraine. But long-time Moscow ally Serbia has not imposed sanctions and neither Belgrade nor Kyiv recognised the independence of Kosovo, Serbia's former predominantly Albanian southern province, which supports Ukraine and is seeking EU and NATO membership. So it's a complicated picture in the Balkans. And that's before you even get into the concerns that there are about Moscow probing and causing political unrest there as part of its general strategy of destabilising Europe as Europe mobilises its resources to be used by Ukraine against Russia. This is a pivotal moment for fostering bilateral ties and standing in solidarity with Ukraine in its heroic fight against Russia's aggression, said Albania's foreign minister today. Now, in Brussels this morning, meanwhile, addressing the European Parliament, Ursula von der Leyen has urged the EU to significantly bolster its defence capabilities and urgently ramp up the production of ammunition. There could be no greater symbol and no greater use for that money than to make Ukraine and all of Europe a safer place to live, she said, in reference to her plan now put forward to windfall profits of frozen Russian assets and to use that against the Russian military by funding Ukraine directly with them. Something also mooted by Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister of Britain, last week, I believe. Ultimately, this is about Europe taking responsibility for its own security, she said. We need to move fast. The threat of war may not be imminent, but it is not impossible. The risks of war should not be overblown, but they should be prepared for. Now, those comments come as the Commission is due to present its sweeping defence strategy as soon as next week. Bloomberg report that the document indicates proposals on how to rapidly ramp up the bloc's defensive production and designate joint military projects for EU funding, including on space and air and missile defence. This, of course, is a vital, vital question at the moment, given the American context. And we've seen, of course, that shock, I think, in Europe of people as people wake up to the fact that America may well withdraw a lot of its extensive military support for Ukraine and indeed more broadly in the defence theatre of Europe. In other news, just a couple of other stories. Lithuania plans to screen 18,000 Belarusians who arrived in the country before 2022 with a questionnaire to ask their views on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's coming from its migration department director, of course, in response to Belarus becoming a key Russian asset in this war. If negative information is found, the state secretary department said, if a person does not answer the questionnaire, it will be interpreted against them. Now, this is a fascinating story on several levels. Of course, what it says about Lithuania, but also it's speaking to the immense 
challenge of measuring the opinions of immigrants who move around Europe. It conjures up questions of whether it's ethical in a liberal democracy to judge people on their political opinions. And if it is, how can one tell what people really think? How can one tell if they aren't just lying? It's a really fundamental question, this, and of course is highly relevant not just in the Ukraine defence theatre, but is also highly relevant in the sort of cultural theatre as well, as we're seeing play out in various different European countries at the moment with the debate around migration. But just lastly, turning to Russia, uh, we learned today Alexei Navalny's funeral service and burial will take place in Moscow on Friday as his allies accused the Kremlin of thwarting their attempts to organise a bigger event a day earlier. That service will be held at 2pm Moscow time in the Church of the Icon of the Mother of God uh, in the district where Navalny used to live. It's not immediately clear how the authorities will ensure crowd control, but Reuters said a heavy police presence is likely. Now, just staying on the subject of Russian opposition, we reported yesterday on the sentencing of human rights campaigner Oleg Orlov to two and a half years in jail for speaking out against the war in Ukraine. Just a quick update on that. The committee that decides the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize has said that giving him a prison term was an attempt to silence critics. So the chairman of the Norwegian Nobel Committee said in a statement that Putin's regime has for many years tried to silence the leadership of Memorial and other important civil society organisations in Russia. Memorial, of course, being the one that Mr. Orlov ran, condemning the actions of Stalinism. They are now using the war on Ukraine as a pretext to finish the job, he added. It is important that they won't succeed. And that leads us neatly on to our interview today with Peter Pomerantsev. Roland, I know you're very keen to take the lead on this. You two go back a long way. So I'll hand over to you. Thank you very much, Francis. I'm very excited to say we're joined by um, Peter Pomerantsev, you may know as the author of Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, Everything is Nothing and Nothing is... I always get it wrong, Peter. Nothing is true and everything is possible. There you are. And This is Not Propaganda was your other one. And you have just written... um, (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Um, He's he's, he's raising his eyebrows at me very archly. Um, uh, The reason Peter's here, Peter... um, is obviously a specialist um, in kind of information, propaganda, that kind of thing, and especially on Russia, um, where, you know, he lived for many years uh, and knows it very well. He's written a new book um, called How to Win an Information War. Um, Now, it's important to say you're not writing from experience. It's not your memoir. You're not claiming to have won one already yourself. But you are looking at the the challenges the Western Ukraine are facing vis-a-vis Russia through the experience of British operations during the Second World War, and particularly um, uh, through the experience of this particular British-Australian journalist called Sefton Delmer, um, who ran a very interesting operation against the Nazis. Could you just tell us who this guy was and um, and what, what is the relevance here? What, what are these lessons? Yeah, I mean, Sefton Delmer um, was a sort of genius of impersonation, understanding audiences, and sort of being able to influence them. Um, during the Second World War, he ran the sort of um, panoply of, of radio stations that would pretend to be Nazi stations, but staffed with the sort of, uh, you know, members of the cabaret scene of Berlin. Uh, lots of Jews actually cosplaying Nazis in order to undermine uh, German will to fight. Um, in the book, I sort of describe this, this, this incredible sort of, sort of like a shadow BBC that was being broadcast out of, 
um, out of Bedfordshire, of all places, out of Woburn Abbey. Um, sort of hundreds of people working there, you know, actors, uh, great writers. Ian Fleming helped a lot with the operation. Muriel Spark worked there. Um, professors of psychiatry uh, from Cambridge University. Lots and lots of um, dissident politicians from Germany. Uh, and not just Germany. He had broadcasts going in all the languages of occupied Europe. Um, but he's sort of the center of my story and his lessons for us today uh, he's sort of fascinatingly bicultural. He grew up in Berlin as the son of a Australian British academic, um, and he was in Berlin during the First World War. He was bullied for being too English. Then he came back to England in 1917 and bullied for being too German. So this kind of perpetual insider-outsider goes back to Germany after um, after Oxford and. He essentially becomes a superstar reporter. Um, today, no doubt he would be working for the Telegraph. I have no doubt about that. <laughs> back then, he was working for the Daily Express, which was a really, really big deal back then because it was owned by um, Lord Beaverbrook, who was sort of a magnate who also had a huge weight in politics. Um, but Delmer is, inc- I think the best way to describe him is he is a mix of Tintin and Borat. He goes on these incredible adventures as a reporter, but he often uses impersonation and provocation as a technique. So, for example, when he's firstly doing his first reports about the Nazis in the 20s, he pretends to be Ernst Röhm, uh, the head of the, the stormtroopers, his, his adjutant, essentially his right-hand man, and penetrates into a Nazi you know, event impersonating Ernst Röhm's adjutant. Uh, he also does this wonderful thing where he, he goes around uh, British seaside towns in the 1920s, really just like Borat, acting like this incredibly obnoxious German, saying all the wrong things, constantly talking about the war, going to sort of like little, little bed and breakfasts all along the south coasts to investigate whether the British had forgiven the Germans for the First World War. It's sort of like the social experiment. He was literally doing 40 Towers. No, he was doing, well, he was doing Borat in 40 Towers. Yes. He was like, Borat comes to 40 Towers, what he was doing. So he was incredibly, and a wonderful writer, um, and really got incredibly close to the Nazis. And he, he wins the, a really unique journalistic gig, so he gets to go backstage on the Nazi propaganda tours, flying with Hitler from Nazi rally to Nazi rally during the 1928 elections. And he gets to see the power of their propaganda close up. And he comes away with it with a sense of both its strengths and its potential weaknesses. And when the war starts, he's like, let me into the secret propaganda war. I mean, he's doing broadcasts on the BBC in German, but he thinks the BBC is somewhat useless because it's preaching to the converted. It's talking about democracy and values and truth. And he's like, you don't get it. The people under the soil of Hitler, they don't care about truth anymore. They are in a deep emotional bond with the leader, which you have to find ways of breaking. This is all about emotion. This is all about identity. This is not about, you know, an information marketplace where, uh, or, or, or theories of democracy. You can't preach to these people. You've got to have to penetrate into the psychological core of that relationship. So his first creation is something called, a character called Der Chef. And to the extent that Delmer is remembered, he's usually remembered for this creation. Der Chef is actually acted by a mild-mannered, of Jewish origin, novelist who'd fled the Nazis, deeply, deeply anti-Nazi. But he has to play this kind of furious, 
very right-wing nationalistic senior soldier who, in these radio shows, which were broadcast on shortwave, seems to be just talking to his fellow soldiers. It's not actually a show. You're actually eavesdropping onto, like, soldiers talking to each other, and which has already made it feel very special for the people listening to it. And he goes on these terrific rants about corruption among Nazi officials. Hitler is okay. Hitler's the sort of guy, you know, that we served with in World War I, but Goering, Himmler, they're all super corrupt. And it's a terrific success. I mean, there's feedback that the British are getting all the time, um, partly from sort of asking POWs, what are you listening to? Partly from their various agents inside Germany. Uh, but there are other records. I mean, we now have the records of the Sicherheitsdienst, that's the sort of security services of the SS. So, I mean, some sources are saying that it's the most popular station in Germany. I don't know what that means. I don't think, I think it must mean the most popular sort of pirate station in Germany. But there are some sources even claiming that from within Germany. And it's terribly popular. And it's popular because it breaks taboos. You know, this is 1941. This is peak success of Germany. This is before the invasion of the USSR. This is when Hitler has everything locked down. Terror and fervor and that mix of uh, glory and fear rule inside the Reich and beyond. And Britain is rocking. So in a bad way, not rocking as in... I understand. Yeah, rocking on yes. his feet rather than yes. like ro- ro- rocking the... rocking. Anyway, so... And, and he breaks these taboos and he says things about the Nazis that only somebody from the ultra-patriotic right could say. Even though the character is invented, the stories are, are very often and largely true. They become more and more true of time as more evidence is gathered. So Delmer is a huge believer in actually using real research to communicate with people. The stories of corruption of mid-level officials were were based on incredible research. Um, the sort of research that Delmer used, and he had actually a, a very senior German politician in exile doing the research, running the research part. He would, you know, interview POWs. Obviously, he would get transcripts of recordings of what POWs were saying to each other because the British put microphones within mm. POW camps to secret ones to record what POWs were saying. And the propaganda value of this is what? In a nutshell. Well, in a nutshell, it is to split German soldiers and German civilians away from the Nazis, very simply, in one line. But Delm was always obsessed with getting people to do stuff, you know, not just to get them to sort of mentally separate, but then to get them to do something. So his theory of change, well, you might use that term today, is to first split them psychologically and then get them to do stuff. So most obviously to defect, surrender, huge pushes to that. Um, but also, he wanted Germans to be more corrupt. He wanted Germans to use the black market more. He wanted them to defect from the Nazi economy. Um, so he'd do things, stories like, I don't know, all the Nazi officials' wives are buying up uh, dresses because no, they know there's about to be a shortage of cotton and try to stimulate a run on clothing stores. So he was very much into, today in, in sort of, communications theory, we talk about attitudinal and behavioral change. So he was very into behavioral change, not just attitudinal change. Sure. But there's an obvious parallel, though. I, I want to come to that. He, he then, he then um, later in the war, has something called the Soldatinsende Calais, which is, and, and I want to get talk to you about this later, because it's a very subtle thing, and yes. I think it's very difficult to grasp. But the, 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 the magic of that one was that everybody kind of understood that it was the British, but it sounded so Nazi that you could kind of 
you had a plausible excuse if you were caught listening. You could say, oh, I thought it was one of ours. But also you could kind of trick yourself and say you're not being patriotic. So there's all of this. I just want to... Um, you just described it very well there. Oh, thank you. See, um, that's why I'm such a good journalist. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so what, what are the lessons here, Peter, for, for if we come back to Ukraine? Yes. And, and the book is just say, the book, I'm not a historian. I am somebody who deals with Russia and, and Ukraine. Uh, and, and, you know, the book is framed around what can we learn today and especially in the context of the Ukraine war, which is why I'm here today with you. You have this, this remarkable kind of, you know, this experience from the Second World War. All right? Everyone agrees that um, the West and Ukraine are currently facing a big challenge um, from an aggressive propaganda effort from, from the Russians. And your case in the book, from, from what I understand from the extracts I've read, is that um, rather like, as Sefton Dahmer said, kind of, you know, Radio Free Europe and the BBC Russian service kind of, uh, you know, talking about democracy and rights and how the invasion is bad, that's preaching to the converted. It's not going to, to crack this relationship between Putin and the Kremlin. So what are the lessons here you think that, that, that the West could learn from this experience? So the lessons, just to be clear, are both positive and negative. So Delma's experience with disinformation was largely negative. So there was tactical uses, for example, in the lead up to D-Day, like everybody else, like all the Ben McIntyre books that we've read, he was sort of like, you know, doing reports that would throw the Germans off the sense of where the invasion would be. And let's be honest, deception is part of war and has been since the, since the Trojan horse. But actually, Delma's relationship with disinformation turned out quite negative. Firstly, Deshev gets busted really quickly, like really fast. And there's this huge scandal about why he got busted. And everybody at Woburn Abbey is accusing each other of, of having betrayed them. But actually, the Nazis just worked it out because they researched the wavelengths. Uh, there was a technical reason. Today, you'll get caught out even quicker. So this idea that you could create a character and that he would be believed for a long time doesn't work. Creating a fake telegram channel. Anyone can do it now. Like yeah. Then you needed, you know, you needed, there was some barriers to entry. You needed, you needed at least some transmitters. Now anyone can do it. It'll be caught really, really quickly. And as you say, what Delma works out is that that's not what it's about. Deceiving people in that sense isn't very, isn't, isn't sustainable. You know? Apart from not being effective and can, and can actually undermine you, it's just, not very, it's just not very sustainable. And so you're quite right. He develops. And what he realizes, what you want to do is draw people into a relationship where they trust you. But in a dictatorship like Germany or maybe Russia today, you want to give people an environment that's safe. You know, you want to, so he creates these stations, which were much more popular than the chef. They're much more meaningful. Anybody walking in might think they're a Nazi station. They've got lectures by Goebbels. They've got speeches by Goebbels. They're going to hack into Nazi radio and sort of retransmit Nazi radio onto uh, their own wavelengths. News flashes, because they managed to, well, Delma managed to acquire a sort of a, essentially a telegram machine, a very sophisticated one, that transmitted Nazi communiques before Nazi radio could. Right. So you could always say, oh, look, you had cover. You could say, look, it's an official station. And then in between that, you do actually, it was almost like the news of the soldier. You know, this incredible news from the front in a very Daily Express kind of style about what was really going on and that really told the truth. And again, about corruption, you, about illness and so on. Are you saying this is what the West or Ukraine should be replicating now? I mean, what, what are the, the applicable lessons here? Oh, definitely. I think, I think tomorrow it would be fantastic for... Russian soldiers all along the front, maybe all the way down to Syria, to wake up to a media project, which I, these days will probably be multimedia, that would give them an environment to tune into content. But look, they're not stupid. They know perfectly well there's no way that this is, you know, Kremlin is, is broadcasting this. 
that would give them the real information, yeah, about corruption in their ranks, about um, how their food supplies were being corrupted due to, I don't know, lax food standards, how um, the problems with um, how they're being treated medically, the way that they are not being paid compensation at home when they're injured. There's lots of, lots of issues with that. Yes, anything that undermined their will to fight, anything that sowed discomfort within the ranks above them about where this information is coming from, get people sort of like blaming each other. I think for me, it's a no brainer. Of course you should. But it takes a huge, to do it well, yeah, to do it well, it takes a huge amount of effort. So Delma had a team of hundreds. There were, the intelligence gathering operation was huge. These days it would be easier. The other week, by the way, there was a very interesting leak on InfoNapalm, a Ukrainian sort of OSINT website, which showed how uh, the Russian army's um, own media misreport and their kind of PR agencies misreported what's going on the front up, you know, misreported it up the scale. Let me let me yeah. just I just I'm, I'm going to open it up to uh, to Francis and uh, and Dom shortly and so on because you know you and I've been talking for a while. But the the immediate kind of response I have to that, which is that this or from the beginning of the war, it's been suppressed a little bit. Now it kind of existed. It was kind of organic, right? You had the the so-called Z bloggers, right? The Igor Strolkovs of this world, the Mersers of this world, these kind of as they would say, kind of straight-talking, right-wing nationalist Russians who were almost saying, yeah, basically, the chef himself, right? You know, the, Putin's all right, unless you're Strelkov, in which you kind of don't think Putin's all right. But, you know, this has been completely mishandled. Shoigu's an idiot. The guys aren't getting uh, rations. The guys aren't getting shells. This is absolutely outrageous. Um, Prigozhin gets in the act. This was a big... That existed there. I mean, do you see, um, do you see parallels there? Um, do, would, you, would you even suggest that... I don't know, some of those guys were part of a disinformation project. Um, no, the saying? Kremlin is... So, yes, there are obvious similarities. Certainly when you look at their chef, you think Prigozhin and you think Strelkov straight away. Um, two things to understand. Firstly, um, and when we're talking about corruption of officials, Navalny did that incredibly well. Alexei Navalny, that's the, the sort of the, the Russian opposition leader who was, who was killed, essentially, uh, last, last week. The Kremlin, as we know, and my first two books are about this, certainly the first one, is much more sophisticated than totalitarian regimes of old. So they know, they understand this is a vulnerability. So what they try to do is kind of control the criticism and use it themselves. So Strelkov and Prigozhin had, you know, had license to do this to keep the army in check. You know, they were there sort of to criticize the other bits of the army. And the Kremlin found it useful. We saw how it spun out of control, how they became a little bit too vocal um, how there were too many cracks within the army for the good of coherency. And now that's been suppressed. And even the Z bloggers are now being suppressed. So we're now, you know, Russia is, all these parallels are never exact, by the way. You know, I'm, I'm in the book, I, 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 I'm very careful. I do caveat it saying, I'm not saying that there's a direct one-for-one link between the Nazis and Russia, but there's inspirations we can take from Delma. So firstly, that space is, is shrinking. There is, however, a very, very big difference between what, Deshef was doing and what Strelkov and Prigozhin were doing. They were trying to be genuine political actors who genuinely wanted to make the Russian army more efficient. That wasn't the aim of, of Deshef. Deshef was sort of saying, look how corrupt they are in the army, so you can be corrupt too. Look how these Nazi officials don't really believe in the cause, so you don't have to believe in it either. Yeah? So sort of the opposite of what Navalny was doing. Navalny was trying to 
stoke outrage at corruption. Der Chef and Delmas projects were trying to do outrage, but as in like, well, if everybody's doing it, you might as well too. I mean, as Ukrainians will often tell you, what saved Ukraine at times has been Russian corruption. So the last thing you want to do is get rid of it. We want more Russian corruption. Um, so that's a very big difference. So Strelkov, you know, these guys, they're genuine actors. You know? They're genuine actions, but they have that same credibility that Dushev has because they are the real deal. They are soldiers and, and people will listen to them in that sense. In, and not just soldiers. What's very interesting with Prigozhin, the analysis that I've seen, and it's hard to do like, audience analysis in Russia, but it was done by uh, some Ukrainians and I share it in the book. The people listening to Prigozhin, the mercenary, the mad mercenary leader who, who sort of dared to go against uh, the army leadership in Russia. The people who listened to him weren't just annoyed soldiers. There was also ordinary people who don't want to serve, who were just fascinated by, oh, my God, there's cracks in the army. Mm. So that's who actually Delmore was going for. His idea wasn't to sort of like, he wasn't trying to start a sort of like a mutiny. He was trying to get ordinary people to go, oh, my God, actually, the army's a bit of a mess and actually hold on like you know maybe my son shouldn't go and serve there and hold on um maybe we shouldn't be so scared of them he was trying to always lower fear of the nazis as well so we've got to keep that in mind and so when when you've got these sort of elements inside russia doing it they have their own agenda um if the ukrainians were doing it with or without our help um then then the aim is slightly different um I'm just going to um, uh, bring in Francis and Dom if you if you have any questions. There's an awful lot um, to talk about, but um, go ahead, uh, Francis or Dom. Thanks, Roland, and thanks for your time today, Peter. Really interesting unpacking this a little bit more on disinformation, actually what can be practically done, because by God, we've talked about the frustrations of it so often. Uh, my question relates to the internet. I mean, obviously, we're talking in the context that you are historically about the Second World War when information is an incredibly valuable commodity, regardless of where it's coming from, in a sense. It's just there isn't that much information that one can read outside of a newspaper and on, on radio. With the internet, of course, there's a whole other element in play here, which is that in a sense, you are able to find information if you search hard enough for it. So my first question is, why are Russians not doing that in your view? How effective can propaganda actually be when people don't really want to receive this information, these truthful information? And my second corollary to that is... Can you comment a little bit about the disinformation we've been seeing coming out of Russia in the use of bot farms and things like that? Because it does seem that there has been a real uptick in that in the last six months to a year or so. And what might the influences of that be on our understanding of this war? Look, Delmar was all about this. Something that is even more now, something we're hyper aware of now that people have, they need to have a motivation to tune in. So Delmar was all about that. He was like saying, stop preaching to them because they don't want to listen to this. It's too dangerous or they just don't want to or they have a psychological bond with Hitler. You've got to work out when you communicate with audiences why they should bother being interested in your facts in the first place. So he's very audience driven and I think that's become even stronger now. You know, Now there's so much choice. You've really got to understand why on earth should people tune in. And that's why he doesn't sort of prioritize, um, you know, lectures about democracy like the BBC would. He was prioritizing really useful information um, about your commanding officer, about your food, about uh, your rights um, if your street had been bombed. So Delmer would know 
which streets the IRF had hit in Germany, and let alone cities, before the Nazis would report on it. And he'd be telling people, look, this street has been hit. If you've got friends or relatives there, you know, go and help them. Also, you now as a soldier have the right to take some leave um, and go and go and see they're OK, uh, which is not a right that the Nazis particularly wanted to to talk too loudly about, but it was real. So he's always thinking about why should somebody listen to this in the first place. Um, so he's way ahead of the curve. I mean, on a much more complicated level, uh, but maybe really, really much more interesting level, Delmer understood that propaganda was all about identity and giving people a role to play. So he'd observed how in the 1920s in Germany, people didn't know who they were anymore. You know, there was society in flux. It's the great time of cabaret, a great time of sort of experimentation with new social identities, but a time of chaos for many people. And the Nazis give you a role to play. Um, and he always thought the most effective propaganda was the one that gave people a role to play that allowed people to know who they were and gave them emotional satisfaction. In the Nazis' case, allowed them to be sad- sadistic and cruel, which is, he didn't have a very romantic view of human nature. I think these days he would have a field day looking at social media where it's all about posing, where everything is about kind of the selfie that expresses who you are in a certain way, where it's all about marking your identity in a certain group all the time. By the way, the Nazis knew this very well. They had kind of this weird Nazi version of Facebook. They would give soldiers a, uh, a kind of diary, state-made diary, uh, which had special places for photographs. And they would give a lot of soldiers uh, photo cameras. And soldiers were meant to write down their experiences as they rolled into Holland or Denmark or Belgium or one of these easy countries to conquer like France. And they would photograph themselves standing by the Eiffel Tower and write notes about how great it was and send it home. So essentially a Facebook page, all about getting people involved in a kind of role playing. So that's the question about, about is it relevant now? I think Delma completely anticipates our understanding of propaganda, where it's no longer um, just about information. It's about desire, why you would want that information in the first place when you have choice, and B, about identity. About Russian bots, look, there's a systemic hit thing issue here. This is something that I looked at in my last book. This is not propaganda, which is all about how technology has changed communication and how technology has changed identity formation, I suppose. Um, there's a systemic issue here. Since we first all started talking about bots, trolls, etc., um, there has been a kind of a push from the expert and policy community to start having more transparency and more regulation of of tech companies. Um, We're moving towards that in Britain and Europe, often very controversially with the online harms bill, but we're still quite far away for it really happening. Um, There's the Digital Service Act in Europe, which would give us, the public, the right to understand what on earth is going on on these tech platforms and to understand, are they bots? Are they real people? Are these coordinated, inauthentic operations? The simple fact is we're not very far along and in America, if anything, we've gone backwards. I mean, you know, uh, if anything, there's even less oversight than there was a couple of years ago. So these are systemic issues. And obviously, the Russians will exploit any systemic opportunity they have. That's what they always do. So we shouldn't be surprised. Mm. Um, I'm just going to, um, Francis, is, is there one more question from Dom, I think? Yes, uh, Dom's, I think, soothing his voice for his final thought uh, as we speak. So he's asked me to, to ask it for him. So he says, how is it possible to run information operations against Russia? Or is reporting 
as we are information that Russia might find valuable or Russians ordinarily might find valuable, the best that we can hope for. So listen, in terms of information gathering, you know, Delma had to go to these extraordinary lengths. We talked about a couple of them, but there are many more to gather truthful information. I, mean, I really want to come back to this. Delma believed that you're on a race of the other side to find the stories that people really care about and affect their lives. So that's the challenge. Don't talk down to them. You don't talk le- give lectures to them. If you want to reach them and then get them to be a less effective fighting force and fighting society, you've got to understand what they care about. These days, it's much easier. Yeah, there are so many. Well, first, you can still talk to people inside even dictatorships like Russia on secure messaging apps and all that sort of thing. OSINT, which now means everything from digital tracking through to getting access to, uh, should we say, the leaked documents of government officials. Um, There's so much easier to gather information, just following the social media posts of soldiers. It's so much easier to get information um, and to understand what people are going through compared to what it was like for Delma or compared to what it was like in the Cold War. So so despite the huge barriers that the Russian state pulls up, um, it is much, much easier to get information. The question is, what information are you looking for in the, in the first place? Are you looking for the information that, you know, private Romanov sitting in on the outskirts of Avdiivka right now cares about or not? Um, are you looking for the information that will get him to fight in a way that is less effective or not? It's the question of what you're focusing on. Um, you know, maybe you'd start being interested in leaked correspondence, not between, I don't know, the head of the Kremlin administration, which is what, you know, journalists will be fascinated with now, but like, you know, the the um, the economic and other habits of, of Private Romanov's commander, uh, which is not something you care about as a journalist, but if you're creating con- content for there, then you would be. And again, look, um, I I think we need the full spectrum. I think it's great what the BBC Russian service do. I think it's great what Radio Free Europe do. All that is fine. I mean, the BBC German service played a huge role in the war in really creating an idea of a possible German future. You had people like Thomas Mann there talking about, you know, what would taking responsibility be and what would, you know, German you know, purging of its sins be after the war. So that's really important. I'm not saying that stuff goes away. But in terms of effective stuff during a war, information plays a slightly different role. Peter, um, we're running out of time. I've got two two questions that I'd like you to answer quite briefly just because we're running out of time, even though I think they, they could be essay questions. Um, one is that off the back of what you just said, um, you know, you talk about uh, a race against the opposition to find the information first and get it out there, which is just journalism. It's what we do. And then you're talking about a kind of editorial decision making about what kind of information you're trying to get out. Right. OK. All right. But you also I mean, I mean, you talk about, you know, um, you said in the extra, you said the aim is not to make these people who are involved in war crimes good. It's to help them win the war by getting them to disobey orders. Right. Yeah. There's, a, there's a wartime utilitarianism here. And that's where, an, uh, where that's where an uncomfortable question comes in. I mean, where for you is the line in disinformation? Does all this have to be truthful or are you comfortable with um, Western stations spreading lies with doing devious things like the chef and so on? I mean, that, that, that makes things difficult for you know us to imagine. We like try to keep our heads above the parapet. But are you saying that actually there's a role for... Uh, darker arts being pursued by the West uh, in the same way that the that the Russians are doing so. I don't. I don't, I don't think that the the West. So, firstly, it's all about balancing the you know the positive and negative. So, again, Delma's career is also a story about 
why disinformation boomerangs on you. Actually, his memoirs were called Black Boomerang, about how a lot of the disinformation he used boomeranged back on him. So he's actually, there's, there's a warning there about how even in the most critical situation, you know, saving Britain from German invasion, even there, he wasn't actually sure whether it had been worth the cost. So there's always going to be this cost. Is it worth the cost? Um, again, in really tactical ways, as I say, like, we're talking about military things. I mean, the Trojan horse is a deception operation. Let's be honest. All right, but, 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 yeah. but, but moving on that, bigger yeah. things, right? I mean, we talk about the, the Russian troll farms and things like that. Are you saying that we should consider those kinds of methods or not? No, I think, I mean, if we're talking about the larger context of how we compete in a 21st century where the other side uses troll farms, conspiracies spewing TV stations, no, I don't think we should do that. I just don't think we'd be, I don't think you need to. I think you can be audience-driven, tap into emotion, explore identity, understand behaviors without without using um, the technology that Russians do, which emerges out of the Russian domestic propaganda culture. And my, my last point is, I mean, how much how much your 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 first book is literally about how the the, the Kremlin embraced this kind of postmodernist concept of no truth to deconstruct things and confuse everybody and and make people not believe anything and so on and so forth and how effective that's been. Um, I mean, how much hope do you have? And if you can answer very, very quickly, because we are running out of time, that, that this can be successful, that the Russian public can be prized away from the Kremlin um, and from that narrative, because it seems like a bit of an uphill struggle right now. So the war has to be fought on all, on all, on all fronts, military, economic. But the informational part has always been maybe the third leg of every war, but it's definitely one of the legs. Um, but if you don't get the military and economic warfare a bit right, ah, Economic statecraft. Sorry, not allowed to use the word economic warfare because it's against WTO rules. The economic statecraft, right? If you don't get that bit right, then obviously information isn't a magic uh, spell that can somehow do something. Uh, Peter, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Rona. No, fascinating subject. I'm going to come to our final thoughts in a moment. I just wanted to add, though, that it's very interesting hearing this conversation because uh, Navalny's wife is currently addressing the European Parliament and is saying that there would be millions of Russians who would disobey the state if they had access to accurate information. So it does speak to what we've been talking about. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's go to final thoughts then. I'm going to start with Dom. Hopefully his voice has recovered enough. Dom Nichols. Well, I'll give it a go, Francis. Um... I'd like to return to the email that I received from uh, from Peter. We were talking about the active or static defence around Avdivka and the relative merits there. Peter, thanks for your uh, thanks for your email. I'm paraphrasing your words, but you basically said you, you you thought that Russia had found a way to defeat the heavy fortifications around Avdivka and Bakhmut, these kind of areas. You said the fortifications were static, so it could be it could be discovered with, as you say, meat assaults, glide bombs, and other semi precision weapons. Um, and then you counter that with the with the defence of Kharkiv, Chernihiv. Um, in open warfare, Russia uh, faltered. 
and Ukraine in those battles gave operational discretion to smaller units and used active defence that allowed for independent action, independent thought, ambushes, coordination, etc., etc. Um, and you're saying that uh, manoeuvre over difficult terrain would stretch Russia and make them vulnerable. I, I do. I think you, you hit a, a, made some very interesting points there. I would say that you know, defence in urban and rural areas, just for, just for starters, is very, very different and difficult, uh, urban especially. Um, but also, as we saw in Bakhmut, the relative cost, it, Ukraine deemed it was worth staying in the fight to, to wear down the Russian um, military sort of capability, the number of tanks and so on and so forth. You point out that the ratio of Ukrainian casualties to Russian, if it's one to five, is that good enough? One to seven, one to ten, where do you draw the line? So I do take all those points. I just wonder if trading ground for, for time to either build up a defence or fight on more favourable terms... Uh, that that might be a very sensible military activity, but if you've not prepared that ground behind you, that's that's exceptionally difficult to do. And, and as you say, I just wonder if you if you then allow a a force to get out into the open and start manoeuvring, whether or not you're giving yourself more problems there. But it, it is a very live discussion. I thought you were, the points were absolutely spot on, very relevant. I I look forward to uh, to others joining in the debate about uh, the difference between an active and and static defence and the pros and cons and. Whether you think uh, it was right to stay on for so long in Bakhmut and Avdivka and elsewhere, or um, or should should more effort have been put into what we saw worked, what Sersky, General Sersky, made work around the defence of of Kiev and elsewhere, and the race through Kharkiv. That um, yeah, this very active, mobile, manoeuvrist defence where you where you're laying ambushes and you're whacking from a from an unseen flank and so on and so forth. A live debate. Peter, thank you so much for your email and look forward to continuing the discussion. And that's about all I can manage, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Dom. Just since you're mentioning military strategy there, I should say that my colleague Stephen Edgington has done a video interview with Anthony Beaver, distinguished military historian, of course, famous for his book Stalingrad, but also many others like Arnhem and D-Day. Uh, he, that interview is out and we'll put a link in the description on that. Lots of reflections on the war in Ukraine and particularly how Putin has pivoted himself and modelled himself indeed on Stalin in certain attributes. But Roland, any final thoughts from you before I go to Peter? Yes, I hope I'm not going to um, preempt Peter on this, but um, I, this conversation has made me think about Russia and what's going on in Russia. Um, over the past few weeks, we, we've seen a number of, uh, of developments, the death of Alexei Navalny being the most prominent, also the jailing of Oleg Orlov, the head of uh, Memorial, um, and also the jailing of a, of a joint US-Russian citizen um, for apparently donating $50 to a, to a Ukrainian charity. Now, all of these, to me, I, I, I can't plot this on a chart. I can't kind of put it through a formula and say why. But for some reason, I, I get the sense that what we're seeing is another one of these periodic waves of, of repression um, that, the, that the Kremlin goes to, um, usually before it's preparing something else. Um, now, we all know there's an election next month um, in Russia, which Vladimir Putin is going to win. The question to me is, is what is the Kremlin thinking about next? What comes after that? I don't think that these developments inside Russia should be kind of brushed aside as, as business as usual. Um, I think we should be paying a great deal of attention to what the Kremlin's game plan is, especially since, as, as I think we know, they're currently feeling the wind at their back. I think the Kremlin probably does feel like 
you know, they can they can fight to the end and get what they wanted from this war. Um, that is my thought for the day. There's, there's a question like implicit in your question that to me about whether we should what we should what should we be doing before you get into what you do? Yeah, which we can debate endlessly uh, about the pros and cons of the lessons from World War Two is to admit that we're in a war. And that, I think, is where we haven't got to yet. I mean, we're still... Delma spent the 30s running around Europe, incredibly frustrated that nobody understood the threat that was being posed to everybody from the Nazis. He'd seen them close up. I don't know, both you and I, we met in Moscow. I I, I worked in Moscow for nine years, and, and you were there for a while as well. I saw something very, very aggressive, grotesque, and with kind of a limitless span of thirst for humiliating both people inside its own society and this need to humiliate others. The society was based around. That's what my first book is about. I don't know. I remember writing my first book, and which had a lot of echoes of Isherwood's books about Berlin in the 30s and going, am I, am I ever doing this? Am I, like, I'm seeing so many parallels, so many repeats in the national psychology and how individuals behave and how there's this sort of chaos that's going to lead to something really quite nasty. I remember writing that book and publishing it and going, am I, am I using my own historical knowledge to sort of like force something onto Russia? And, and it looks as if, sadly, history is repeating itself. It always repeats itself in completely different ways. But something is emerging. And before we get to the question of like, what should we be doing? We've got to decide that we are doing something. And we haven't got to there yet. We still think this is Ukraine's war against Russia. And I think we have to understand that it's ours as well. Thank you for listening to Ukraine The Latest. Your support and attention means a great deal. Just in case you didn't know, The Telegraph runs another podcast you may be interested in. Battle Lines is our weekly global affairs and defence podcast where we look at conflicts and unrest around the world with The Telegraph's foreign desk. On Battle Lines, you'll hear updates and news on everything from the violence in the Middle East and Red Sea, civil wars in Sudan and Myanmar, to unrest in Ecuador. Join Roland Oliphant, Sophia Yan and Natalia Vasilyeva on Battle Lines, published every Friday, with occasional segments by myself and other contributors to this podcast. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To support our work and to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, please subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our foreign affairs newsletter, bringing stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We also do the same for other breaking international stories. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app and leave us a review as it really helps others find the show. Please also share it with those who may not be aware we exist. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. 
You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do continue to read every message. You can also contact us directly on X, formerly known as Twitter. You'll find our handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Today's Ukraine The Latest was produced by Phil Atkins. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.